following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Please turn to Philippians chapter 2. Not Mark 1. I'll explain why here in a second, as well as uh, give you an update on something. We're not trying to draw undue attention to the Hornbecks today or to the Coastons. However, I had a phone call late last night with uh, Caleb and Carmen that I've not been able to share with Ed or Jordan or Chris yet, so they were unaware of it even as they were talking with you. But I told uh, Caleb and Carmen I would share this with you, and that will kind of explain why we're not in Mark 1 today. Originally, um, just for a bit of background, I was planning to take both this Sunday and next Sunday off because it's been Jordan's first week. Uh, He started this past Monday, and I'll make jokes about that at a later time, but... uh, I was going to take these first two weeks off so I could focus more time with him as he's getting started and we're trying to figure out what to do. However, uh, as they were saying, Dan's situation, uh, Caleb was supposed to preach for me today, and so we thought maybe it'd be best if we didn't do that, didn't depend on him just in case anything happened, and sure enough, that worked out to be providential. Uh, apparently, they got a call this week from their brother Eric, who is there with Dan and Luann, and they said he told them, you need to come in, it's not looking very good. So they went in with Matt and Rachel, I don't know what day they left, Thursday, Friday, something I think. They got there, apparently Friday was a good day, he was up and about talking, laughing, eating, I mean tired and sick as you would imagine, but he was active at least, but something happened overnight into Saturday morning and by the time Saturday rolled around he was no longer able to even get to the bathroom on his own is not really with it. He he says names when people walk in the room, but they're not sure he really understands what's going on. And so they called me late last night, and we were talking about it, and they asked me to pass this on to you. Um, originally, the doctors had told him once he stopped with his chemo treatments, he would probably have less than two months. I asked Carmen last night if this sharp and unexpected turn changed that, and her response to me was, at this point, I'm not sure he's going to make it through the week. So uh, uh not unexpected completely, but just the timing is unexpected. So we need to pray for them for a few things specifically. And I'll put this all on cobblestone so that you all can see it and remember it throughout the week. Um, one, they need just a lot of wisdom about what to do this week. Because they were planning, most of them were planning to come back home tomorrow. And now they're asking, should they leave? Um, and they're just not sure. And, and they don't have any assurances of how long it's going to stay like this. Will he pull back out? The hospice nurse didn't seem to think so, but then again, the hospice nurse isn't God, so we don't really know. Um, so they need prayer just for wisdom and what to do. They, they have asked for special prayer for the kids because the kid, you know, it's hard enough for us as adults to grieve and deal with grief in those moments and process that. It's even harder for our children, and, and uh, Cole and Joya and Judah are aware of what's happening and are struggling each in their own unique way with, with this. And so just prayer for Caleb and Carmen as parents to help them. Prayer for Matt and Rachel, I don't want to forget them either in this. I tend to talk about uh, Caleb and Carmen, but Matt, obviously it's his father, so uh, prayer for them as well and wisdom on what to do. Just a lot of stuff. If you've been through it, you know. So I'll put all of this on cobblestone. We're going to pray for them as a family. We'll keep you updated as stuff comes out and happens, but we wanted you to know he was supposed to be preaching today. I was not, and so I didn't have, uh, I wasn't prepared for the next part of Mark However, again, in God's providence, it's funny how you look back like after things happen and you're like, well, okay, I see what God was doing. He was already getting us ready for this. I had been asked months and months and months ago 
to preach last night over at Redeemer Church in Chesapeake in their singles meeting called Access, and they're working through the book of Philippians. And so they had asked me specifically to preach on Philippians 2, verses 19 to 30. So this isn't a random message that I just, you know, like, let's just do here kind of thing. Uh, They had a plan, and so I was a part of that plan for them. And so since I just had that ready to go in order to spend more time with Jordan and with all the uncertainties of Caleb and Carmen's situation, you're getting what I gave them last night, okay? So I apologize for that on one hand, but I think it will still be beneficial for us, even though it's a break from Mark. Uh, there's a lot here, and I'll talk more about what's here and why we're doing it here in just a second. But if you're in Philippians chapter 2, now that you know what's going on and why we're here and why it's different, once you look at verse 19, we're going to read all the way through the end of the chapter together, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer, asking his blessing on this time. Paul writes in verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare for they all seek their own interests not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. He's in prison, if you're wondering why he's talking like this. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Jesus, as we come now into your word, it's a different Sunday in the sense that not in our series of, of looking at Mark. And yet we recognize that even in the ordering and timing of events, this is not an accident. It's providential. You had planned this months ago when none of us knew anything that was going to be happening. And so we trust that today, as we come into Philippians 2, and we look at these truths here in this very, very personal section that Paul is writing to the Philippian church, that you will Help us to see the need we have to live like Jesus here in this Christian community that we call the church. Help us to to understand what it means to, to really live out the mind of Jesus, the, the humility and sacrifice and selflessness of Jesus here amongst all these brothers and sisters that have gathered together this morning and, and even those away from here. And so, Lord, as we work through this, we know that your word is powerful, so it doesn't matter if it's Mark or Philippians or anywhere. Every time we come face-to-face with your word and your spirit is active, we know that you can change us and will change us and will make us more and more like you. And so that's our prayer this morning, that you will do that here in this text. We ask all this in your name. Amen. All right, so it's confession time starting off here want to know, and I want you to be honest, regardless of who in the room this happened to, but I want to know how many of you have purposefully, when you knew you weren't supposed to, you purposely have looked at someone else's mail, email, or text messages. Raise your hand. Everybody else look at those people and stay away from them, all right? Uh, 
I, I think probably we've all done it at some point in our lives, most often because we've been curious about something. Maybe we saw something on someone's desk or, or table, kitchen table or whatever, or locked in their diary, whatever it was that we saw. And we were interested about what was there and thought that perhaps uh, it would be juicy or interesting if we could read that or know it. Sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. It depends on on who you're talking about. Take my my mother, for example. She just had her 70th birthday, right? I told you about that last month. So uh, she just had her 70th birthday. And because of her age and circumstances and health, for, for years now, I get all her mail. Okay, so every bit of her mail comes to me and I open all her mail. That's the plan. That's the arrangement. But because she's 70, the most interesting thing in her mail is what's covered by Medicare and what isn't. There's never anything more more juicy or gossip-worthy in it than that. Compare that or contrast that to if you ever get the opportunity to read your, your parents' old love letters. If you go back and read this from this time, some of you are laughing, I don't want to know why. Um, you go back to this time when your parents were young and they were first in love and, and you, you see a side of them that you've never really seen in your life because you always knew them as old, right? That's all they ever were to you. They were just old. But now they're young again and as you're reading those old letters and you, you're reminded in those moments that they, they went through the same things that you went through and that they felt the same things that you feel. And it's, it's really interesting because it just gives you a different uh, look. That's just how it is when you read someone else's mail. Well, in a similar way, When we read the New Testament epistles, we are literally reading someone else's mail. These epistles are letters that were sent from whoever wrote it to whatever person or group of people that they were writing to. And yet, despite that fact, I find that I don't often think of the epistles in that way. When I'm reading Romans, I tend to read Romans as a theological treatise on the gospel. Or, or as a theological manual, understanding what Jesus has done for us, not as a personal letter from the man Paul to a group of people there in the church of Rome. And, and that's a, a very fine distinction, perhaps, in some respects in my mind, and yet it does change the way that I read that particular letter. But every now and then you run across a section in one of these letters that reminds you of what it really is, that it's a letter, And this section here in Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 to 30, is just that kind of section. If you were to look back uh, to Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, and start reading, kind of get the context, you would see that in in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, he has been exhorting them, teaching them about what it's going to mean to live together as the church. So don't consider yourself more highly than you ought to. Rather, consider others to be more important than yourself. That's his opening commands there in verses 1 through 4. Well, well, how do you do that? Well, you have to have the mind of Christ. And so to have the mind of Christ, it means that you're not willing or, or, or need, you don't need to hold on to what's rightfully yours. Jesus wasn't, uh, didn't have to hold on to what was his. He humbled himself. He came to earth in the form of a man. And then when he got there, he humbled himself even further by dying on the cross for our sins. So then, church, in a similar way as you think of yourselves and how you're going to interact in this Christian community that we call the church, don't hold on to your rights. Be willing to put the needs of others above yourself. Live like Jesus. That's, that's verses 1 through 11. You get to verses 12 to 18, and you see that he's, he's talking about doing everything without grumbling or, or disputing no matter what. 
And this isn't just true of them, it's, it's true of Paul too, because here he is in prison, and he says in verse 17 that even though he's there, and even though it's possible that he could be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of the Philippians' faith, he's glad about it. He, he's glad that he's in prison. He's glad that he could even possibly die for the sake of the gospel and for what that will do for the Philippians. And not only is he glad about it, if you look there in verses 12 to 18, he wants them to be glad about it too and rejoice with him. And so as we live together in Christian community, we're, we're reminded that circumstances aren't the, the measuring line of, of what's good and bad in this, situa- in this, in this thing. Because you can have horrible circumstances and be with no grumbling, no complaining, genuinely rejoicing in whatever comes our way in the midst of this. And if, if I was going to take verses 1 to 18 and give them a, a heading, if we were preaching through that section here, which I'd love to preach through Philippians at some point in the future, but if we were doing that, I think I would title those first 18 verses, selflessness, or excuse me, Christ-like selflessness and sacrifice in Christian community. That, that would be the, the heading that I would put over all of that section. And then, after all of that, you get to verse 19, and everything seems to change. His tone changes from one of teaching and exhortation to, to one that is very, very personal in nature. It's one of those sections, as I said a few moments ago, that reminds us that this is a personal letter from Paul, the man Paul, to this group of people there at the church in Philippi. And while that's kind of neat on one hand, and it helps you get some of the flavor and the color of, of, of Paul and the situation and stuff that I really, really like. I mean, we've already seen that in Mark as we see Mark make comments about things. And I'm like, that gives you a real idea of what was happening. It brings the story to life. These sections bring the story to life, and that's kind of neat. I think where we tend to struggle, though, in those sections is then knowing what to do with them. So what does it really matter then to us, this is, what does it matter to us that, that Paul is sending Timothy to the Philippians? What, what does it matter that Epaphroditus was ill and nearly died, and, but now he's better and he's being sent back? Does that have any real value to us? And we tend to think, no, we would never say that, because we know 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, right? That all scripture from the genealogies to sections like this to everything else, it's all inspired by God and it's all profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. Why? So that we can be complete and equipped for every good work. And we're like, I know that, God, but how? How how does a personal section like this in one of the epistles help make me like Jesus? Well, that's, of course, the task of my time with you this morning. So to help you see how this section works in that way, let me ask you a question, right? Because I always ask questions. So let me ask you a question. Why does Paul include this particular section here at this point in the letter? And to understand why I'm asking this, go back again to verses 12 and 18, 12 to 18. You see him there talking about doing everything without grumbling, complaining, in fact, instead of that, you need to be glad about your circumstances. You need to be rejoicing in those circumstances. Now pause, look at chapter 3, verse 1. What's the very first command in chapter 3, verse 1? Rejoice, okay? So from 18 to 1, there's really no break in the thought except that it's interrupted by this personal section. So, so why? Why break it up? 
Why not say these things at the beginning of the letter when you were opening and saying hi to them in the first place? Why not say, oh, and by the way, I'm sending Timothy to you and Epaphroditus? Or, as Paul would more normally do, why not do it at the end of the letter? Once he's all done with teaching, once he's all done with his instructions, say, oh, and by the way, now, here comes Timothy and Epaphroditus, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Why here? Well, I would like to suggest that the placement of this section at this particular point in Philippians, say that five times fast, is not accidental, but rather is intended to highlight in some very practical and personal ways the Christ-like sacrifice and selflessness that he has been teaching them about in verses 1 to 18. And so what I'm going to do this morning is not a normal sermon. I told the group last night that, and I could say it to you, you know what it means. They didn't know what this meant, that it's a family talk, right? I had to explain what a family talk is to them. If you're not familiar with this, this is a, a time where I don't really do a, a normal sermon type approach, but I really try to, to be very personal and, and applicational in the text and just challenge us with some stuff, okay, as a family, because that's what we are. We're a family together in Jesus, a family together here at Cornerstone, and every now and then I think it's good for us to take some time and just... Talk stuff through. Talk stuff out. And, and this passage lends itself so well to that kind of approach because here in this personal section, you see exemplified in, some, in four different parties the very things he's been teaching the church about in the, in the previous verses, the selflessness and sacrifice of Jesus. And I don't know if he did that on purpose, or if the, if the Spirit just simply guided him to do it at that particular moment, one, whether he knew about it or it was the Spirit's thing, I think this is here to put the, these truths to life in, in, in real situations with real people. And so we want to look at them this morning. And what we're going to do is we're going to ask a question for each party here in this personal section. We're going to say, how do we see this Christ-like selflessness and sacrifice exemplified in whoever it is, Okay. And then we'll look at some examples, look at some proofs, and then make some applications at the end. So let's start with Paul himself. It's not really a character study. I call it a characteristic study. But let's look at Paul himself. How do we see this Christ-like sacrifice and selflessness exemplified in Paul? We see it in three ways. Number one, you see it by the fact that he's in prison for the gospel. He's in prison for the gospel. And that's not really here uh, talked about a lot in this particular section, but it is a situation that underlies this section. He's sending Timothy to them because he can't go. <laughs> He's locked up. He's he, sending Epaphroditus. Excuse me, Epaphroditus came to him because the Philippian church heard he was in prison for the gospel and knew that he needed help. And so they sent him. So this is, this is the underlying sacrifice that sets the stage for the entire letter. Paul's commitment to Jesus is so great that he's willing to give up everything and, and even be in prison for the sake of the gospel. And yet I, I recognize for us that we struggle giving up a, a Thursday night for the sake of the gospel, much less everything. We struggle giving up a few dollars to help Crisis Pregnancy Center or, or, or Jonathan and Sarah Farmer, much less having to really sacrifice everything for the sake of the gospel. Paul's willing to give it all up, and, and that's why he's an example. Number two, you see it by the fact that he's sending his, his very best worker. He's sending Timothy to them. And, and notice what Paul says about Timothy here in these verses. In verse 20, he says, I have no one like him. And, and, and pause and just know, we don't really know who's, who's on his roster at this moment. 
We don't know who's there and who's not there. So it's hard for us to judge and say, well, wow, Luke must have been a really bad guy. We didn't really know that. Maybe Luke's not there. Maybe he is. And now we just learned something about Luke. Okay, you see what I'm saying? We don't know who's on the, who's on the list, but whoever is there, when Paul looks at his roster of, of, of ministers, he's like, I got nobody like Timothy currently on the bench. He says, there's no one who will be genuinely concerned for their welfare like Timothy, verse 20. All his other helpers at that time are more concerned about their own interests, not those of Jesus, verse 21. Ouch. I mean, that's, you think about Paul saying that. He looks at the list and he's like, okay, here's this guy or this girl. And clearly they're more concerned about themselves than they are about Jesus Christ. I can't send them. That's a a biting remark. He says in verse 22 that Timothy's been like a son to Paul. So to, to send Timothy at this point in Paul's life then, you get to see it now. It's a major sacrifice for him. He's sending the very best person he has to the Philippians. Now hold that thought and consider the third way we see this in Paul. You see it by the fact that he's sending back a dedicated helper as well. Uh, not only is he sending back his best worker, he, he's sending back Epaphroditus, a man who had come to Rome specifically to take care of Paul. He's not there necessarily to help Paul in, in the work that Paul is doing. I'm not saying that he never did that. But his mission, his job, as you look at the, the, the letter to the Philippians, is to go take care of Paul because he's in prison. And in case you're not up on uh, world history, Roman prisons weren't day spas. All right? Got it? They're, they're not exactly soft, comfortable, wonderful places. It's a hard place. It's a, it's a cruel place. It's a place where no one really cares about you. And so for Epaphroditus to come and do this must have been a huge blessing and, and help to Paul himself. But, but due to this illness that he gets that nearly kills him, Paul now feels it's right to send him back. The church is worried. He doesn't want them to be worried. And so he's willing to give up a person who is there specifically to take care of him. And so when you take those, those two things together there, you see that Paul is willing to selflessly, sacrificially put the needs of others before his own needs. He needs Timothy. He's the best worker, hands down. He needs Epaphroditus. No one else is there to take care of him personally. And yet he gives them both, both up. And as I was thinking through that over the, the, the last week or so here, I was thinking, would I do that if I was in Paul's shoes? Would you? You're, you're in prison, and you're still trying to manage ministry. You're still trying to manage the, the spread of the gospel there in Rome, and, and it's rough, it's hard, and you've got your two best people there on either side of you. You've got Timothy, the best worker, Epaphroditus, your own personal caretaker. Would you give those guys up? I'd be like, send Demas, okay? Demas is probably still around at this point. He, all, he, all he really needs to do is go deliver a message, right? That's it. He just deliver a message and tell them uh, everything's fine, and tell them how I'm doing, and then bring me back a report. I'm not sending Timothy, and I'm sure not sending Epaphroditus. I mean, Demas, again, can just tell them he's fine. I saw him yesterday. He's fine. When I left the airport, everything was good. Don't worry about him. You're, you're good. I would not be willing, I think, if, if, if I was in Paul's shoes, and if I'm being honest, I do not think I'd be willing to send these people. And yet, Paul is. And I will say this now, and I will say it again in more detail at the end. Paul is willing. Why? It's because Christ was willing to do the same thing. Because this is what Christ did for us. He, he didn't choose what was best for him. 
Because what is best for Jesus when he uh, is in heaven considering his plan of redemption? What is best for him is not to come to earth in the form of a man. How in the world could this, this be better than what he had? And when he got here, he chooses to die, not just any death, but a death on a cross. That is not best for him. But it was best for us. And so Jesus willingly gave up what was best for him, for us. And, and that pushes us to ask ourselves the question, would we be willing to do the same, to really give up all and do what's best for others when it's clearly, clearly not best for us? It's easy, by the way, pause again. It's easy to do what's best for others when it doesn't impact you. Because who really wants you know, someone to suffer? I don't want any people to suffer. If they can have what's best for them, that's great. But if... In order for them to have what's best for them, it's going to take what's best for me. All of a sudden, my heart is open wide. Now, all of a sudden, it's going to cost me something to to see them have what's best. And am I really willing to do that? Paul was. Jesus was. And because of that, Paul serves as our first example of this Christ-like sacrifice and selflessness here in these verses. Number two, you see that same kind of sacrifice and selflessness in Timothy. And again, I'd give you three ways. One, by the fact that he's a servant who was willing to serve Christ, Paul, and the Philippians in that order. And to see it and why I'm putting it that way, again, look at verse 21. Paul says about everyone else, they're all serving their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Timothy is the exception. He is serving the interest of Jesus Christ, which means that he sees himself as a servant of Christ first and foremost. And because he's a servant of Christ, then he serves Paul. He's willing to go if Paul wants him to go. He's willing to stay if Paul wants him to stay. stay. You see that not just here in Philippians, but throughout Acts and the rest of Paul's letters as well. That's why Paul compares him to a son. And that willingness to serve Paul then extends to the people that Paul himself wants to serve, the Philippian church. He's going for their welfare, Paul says. He's going to serve them by bringing them news of Paul's situation and by being an encouragement to them. So he's a servant through and through. Number two, you see it by the fact that he genuinely cares for the Philippians. If you were to go back to Acts chapter 19 and 20, you would see that he was there when the church was founded. These are people he knows and loves. He's genuinely concerned. When Paul writes those words there in verse 20, he's basically saying to them, it's not just a, a culturally polite kind of love. You know what I'm talking about? Where you talk to someone on Sunday morning, they tell you about some horrible thing that's going on in their life, and you're like, oh, I feel so bad. Okay, and how was football? You know, Three seconds later, you've completely forgotten about the conversation. Or, or they say, you know, hey, this was really hard this week, and you're like, oh, I'll pray for you. And so you do this, Jesus, please help them. Amen. That way you don't feel bad that you forget to pray for them, right? Because so if you do it instantly, you're, I've done that. Okay, I admit it. This is not the kind of care or concern that that Timothy has for the Philippians. His care for them is genuine. It's love for them is real. And you see that then as an example of of, of that Christ-like sacrifice and selflessness. Number three, you see it by the fact that he's unlike the other workers. He's unlike them. He's, He's willing to put the will of Jesus first. He wants what Jesus wants. He's interested in what Jesus is interested in. And so in Timothy, you see a servant who genuinely loves and cares for those around him and who seeks to make the will of Christ supreme above everything else. Third example is Epaphroditus. This time you'll see it in four ways. Number one, you see it by the fact that he has served well. Just look at verse 25 and notice the terms that Paul uses to describe him there. He is a brother. 
is a fellow worker. He is a fellow soldier. In other words, this isn't just a guy who's sitting on the sidelines letting everybody else do the work. He's in. He's in. He's not content to just attend and just be a part. He, he wants to be involved, engaged in whatever it is that Paul is doing. And again, I'd pause and ask, does, does that apply to us? How many of us are willing and regularly just sit by and watch others do the work even though we see the need and we don't help? Epaphroditus isn't that guy. Number two, you see it by the fact that he came on behalf of the church. In verse 25, Paul refers to him as your messenger. That means he wasn't there just on his own little personal ministry journey. He's been sent there by the church. And I've tried to like, we don't really know why he's the guy who came and not some other person. But I'm trying to envision how this would work if we were, if I stood up here one day and said, hey, look, Somebody that ministered to us and was the founding part, person in our church is, is in prison and it's really bad and you might die. Who wants to go? And this is about the response I think I'd probably get, all right? No hands up. I, I don't know how they went about saying, hey, look, Paul's in jail and it's really bad and we need you. Someone needs to go and help. Who wants to do it? If Epaphroditus is like, I'd love to go, please send me. Or if it was simply a matter of him saying, My church needs this, and I'll go do it. He's serving his church as he serves Paul. His ministry isn't just about him. It's about or what he feels comfortable with. It's about what his church needs him to do, and you see that reflected here in this letter. Number three, you see it by the fact that he came specifically to serve Paul. Again, verse 25, Paul calls him a minister to my need. I already addressed that. He's the guy who's ministering to the minister. He's taking care of the person whom God has called to this work. And so by encouraging and caring for Paul, he's freeing Paul then to be a more effective minister of the gospel. Number four, you see it by the fact that he risked his life in ministry. Because in verse 27, Paul tells us that he nearly died. He nearly died from some sickness. Because that kind of thing happens in prison, right? Again, I I mentioned uh, not too long ago, I was reading uh, David Platt's book, Radical, which again, I'm way behind schedule on book reading, but... um, in that, in one of the chapters I read just recently, he was talking about a ministry team that uh, left from their church to go over to this country, tribe, city, something in Africa that was highly infected by HIV. I think it was like 80% of the people had HIV, and so they were running an HIV clinic. And they knew up front there would be dangers in this, and they tried to take precautions, but in the course of that trip, two of their workers got pricked by needles. And we're all like, oh, I'd never do it. <laughs> That's just too dangerous. And the response of the ladies who got pricked were like, this stuff happens when you're serving Jesus. See, ministry isn't always clean and safe. Sometimes it's dirty and it's dangerous. And, and when you look at Epaphroditus here in prison with Paul, he, he's like, okay, I'll go. I'll be there. I might die. And boy, is that so, so against the American view of how, how God wants us to live for him. Well, clearly God wants me to be safe and happy, right? Clearly. He wants me to be in the comfortable house and never have to go anywhere that might possibly endanger me or my happiness. Uh Uh-uh. Sometimes God calls us to things that aren't happy for us and we don't necessarily like and that may in fact kill us. That doesn't mean it's not in his will. And so in Epaphroditus, we see someone who's willing to serve with his whole heart those who had served him and was willing to serve where his church needed him, even if it wasn't safe and clean. Number four, you see it in the church of Philippi. 
You see it by the fact that they loved Paul. They loved him. This letter to the Philippians is effectively a thank you letter because they loved him so much when they saw his need, they acted. That's number two. They sent him a gift of both stuff and people. Because <laughs> they knew that he had needs and those needs needed to be met. And so he needed blankets and food and, and money and whatever you need in Roman prisons. I don't know. He, he needed a, a person. He needed someone there to take care of him. And so the church sacrificed Believe me, if Epaphroditus is willing to go to the Roman prison, he's like one of their best people. <laughs> they sent one of their best people. They, they gave their, their stuff to take care of Paul. They sacrificed in that way. Number three, they, they loved Epaphroditus, their own minister. They loved him. They're worried about him. Ever since they heard about his illness, they, they must have sent word asking about him. So they didn't just say, hey, Epaphroditus, go, and they forget him. No, they They continue to love him and they rejoice when he comes home. And so in the Philippians, you see a church now, a church that loved those who had served it, took care of their needs and loved those who ministered on their behalf. Now, think back through these four parties and ask yourself some questions. In Paul, you see someone who was willing to give up all and do what's best for others, particularly when it wasn't best for him. Does that describe you? And I want you to really ask yourself that question. Does that describe you? Would, would you be willing to give up everything for Christ? And I know, I know, I get it. It's so hard for us as Americans to ask ourselves that question because we're never, seems like, put in those positions where it's really even a, an option that feels real. So it's always this hypothetical question out there, but just because it's hypothetical doesn't make it unimportant or unhelpful. How tightly are you holding to your situation and stuff in life? Would you be willing to part with it? Would you be willing to do what's best for others, particularly when it's not best for you? That's the key component there. It's not just do, do what's best for others. Do it when it's not best for you. Would you be willing to do that? In Timothy, you see a servant who genuinely loves and cares for those around him and who seeks to make the will of Christ supreme above, above everything else. Does, again, does that describe you? Would anyone else in this room call you a servant if you took a poll? Because it's so easy for us to ask ourselves, am I a servant? Yeah, I'm a servant. I serve like this and this and this. And Does anyone else know that? <laughs> Would anyone else look at you from the outside and say, oh, yeah, he's a totally a servant. Serve. She is a servant. She's always trying to care for others. Do you, do you genuinely, genuinely care for the people that God has placed in your life? Is everything at arm's length for you? Is there anyone inside the bubble? Anyone whom you, you genuinely care about and love and would do anything for that they needed? Do you serve wherever the church has a need, even if it's not what you like or feel comfortable with? And I was never planning to say this to us. This was purposely designed for them, but it's applicable to us. I cannot tell you how many times we talk to people and we say, we need you to serve here. And they're like, well, I don't really like that. Do you have anything else? I want to sing. I don't want to work in the nursery. Well, you can sing in the nursery. How about that? All right. We laugh and it's fine. And, and I'm being a little funny with it. But I mean this with all sincerity to us here at Cornerstone. What is ministry to you? Is it about your needs? about the needs of the church and the people around you? It's an important question to ask. And Epaphroditus, if you asked him, it was the church. 
It was what he needed, the church needed him to do, excuse me. Look at the Philippians. It's a church. This, this is to us now corporately, not individually. It's, it's a church that loved, here, there we go, a church that loved those who had served it, took care of their needs, and loved those who ministered on their behalf. Does that describe Cornerstone? Do, do we foster a spirit here, a culture of love for, for those who have served us in the past or who serve us now? And, and I, I hesitate saying that because I feel like you immediately think of me because I'm the one up here, but I don't mean it just about me. I, I mean it about every leader, every minister here at Cornerstone, every elder, every community group leader, every ministry head. When was the last time you, you went up to the, your kid's Sunday school teacher and said, thank you. Thank you for what you do every week. Thank you for the time you're investing in my children. I recognize it and I appreciate it. Hey, what do you need? Can I help you with something? Is there anything I could do to make the time better for you? When was the last time we thanked anybody who served us? Gratitude goes a long way in those moments. And and we as a church should be fostering a sense of gratitude and and to, to make sure that we're caring for those who serve on our behalf. And so the, whether it's the music people or nursery workers or ushers or whoever, are we caring for their needs, the people who are serving on, on our behalf as a church? We don't, we don't do a great job with that, and I admit that to my fault. We need to do better. We need to do better to exemplify this Christ-like sacrifice and selflessness in every respect, to thank them and check on them and love them the way that we should. This is what I mean when I say to you that this section isn't just accidentally here. Not just accidentally here. In the, in the midst of all this talk that Paul's been doing in the first 18 verses about having the mind of Christ and, and being like him and, and putting others first, these are examples of people who are living it. But here at the end, let me be very, very clear about something. These people aren't really the examples, right? You get that. The, the only reason these people are examples is because of what Jesus has done for them. Because of the sacrifice and selflessness that Jesus has shown to them. And so Paul doesn't call us to have the mind of Timothy or the mind of Paul. He calls us to have the mind of Christ. We're not told to rejoice in sufferings like Epaphroditus did. We rejoice in sufferings like Jesus did. We don't grumble or do things without grumbling or complaining because the the Philippian church didn't mind sacrificing. We do things without grumbling or complaining because that's how Christ served us. And so Christ is our example, and throughout this passage, not Paul or Timothy or Epaphroditus or Philippians, uh, as you look through here, there's only one name repeated over and over and over again, and that's the name of Jesus. And so as we continue to learn what it means to live together in Christian community, and this is not a, just a Philippians thing, this is what Cornerstone is in the midst of right now. We're trying to learn to live together as this community that we call the church, as we consider what it means to live like Jesus. Here are some examples. Here are some people who, because of what Christ has done for him, have gone before us and have learned to live in the selfless, sacrificial way to which we've been called. And so I urge us, I exhort us to live and serve like this as well. Let's pray. Lord, it is convicting to look into these examples and see how far short we fall. We tend to be so selfish we, we don't have the mind of Christ. We don't esteem others as being more important than ourselves. We are more concerned for our interests than for those of Jesus. It's enough to drive us to our knees, knees nearly in despair, except for the fact that even in our failures, those have been covered by the blood of the cross, by the blood of Jesus. And so 
we remember your grace and your love and mercy shown to us now. We confess our sins, our selfishness to you. And we come now asking that you will, by your spirit, give us new hearts. Change the hearts of the people here at Cornerstone where it's needed to to be selfless, sacrificial servants like Jesus was, to, to live for, the, uh, for others around them, to, to watch for the needs and cares that the people have, and then to meet those gladly, even when it's not best for them. There's so much to learn here, so much to think about, so much to apply. Only you can really do it, though, Lord, in each, in each individual heart. And so, God, I give this message to you. I give this passage And I ask that your spirit apply it. And as we go out today, that we just not forget it. Just go home as if this never happened. That we really, really contemplate, meditate on these questions. How are we serving? How are we living in this Christian community we call Cornerstone? Thank you for your word, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.